0: And now the Lord turns us to His servant. Verse 1, chapter 42. Behold, My servant whom I uphold, My chosen one in whom My soul delights. I have put My spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, chapter 42 brings us into a centuries-old controversy. Who is this that the Lord calls My servant? Right. This is Jesus. This is obviously and clearly Jesus. Now, some in the controversy say, well, wait, no, no. Some say it's a person, uh, perhaps the Messiah. Others say, no, it's a people. It's just the personification of the entire people of Israel. So when God says, My servant in Isaiah, He's talking to Israel, but he, he individualizes it as though He's talking to an individual, but, it, but it's, it's all of Israel. And there have been probably mostly liberal scholars, both in Judaism and Christianity, who fall to that side and say, No, my servant, this is not Jesus, because <laughs> that would be prophecy, and that's impossible. <laughs> my servant, a person... Or a people. Remember, gang, what we saw regarding Jacob the worm and Jesus the worm? That Jesus personally identifies with tiny Israel. Now you gotta get this because it it will be, it will inform the rest of our study, especially in the next several chapters to come. Back in chapter 41, verses 8 and 9. Remember, God said, You Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called you from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. That servant right there is clearly Israel. As we read on here in chapter 42, the first seven verses, the servant is clearly a person, Messiah. But there are going to be other places. In fact, the latter half of chapter 42 is clearly my servant is clearly a people again. Israel. Why does God do that? I love the answer that Delitz gives. Kyle and Delich, great uh, scholars, German scholars, actually of the Hebrew Scriptures. And Delitz describes this relationship that Jesus has with Israel as a triangle. Picture this, a triangle where the base is the whole of Israel. And Delitz says, look at the, the central part as the spiritual remnant of Israel, But the apex is the perfect mediator of salvation, the Messiah. It is all Israel. Remember, Jesus is a Jew. Jesus came as a Jew to the Jewish people. He is one among the Jewish people with a Jewish ancestry. And so when Isaiah is talking here, and the Lord refers to my people Israel as my servant, but then he refers to Jesus as my servant. That's why he refers to both as his servant. Because he's looking overall at his people. And you can look at it this way. Jesus is the perfect Jew. He's the ideal Jew. He's the one who in the flesh came as the perfect son of God, even as the Jewish people were originally called the children of Israel. Called to be sons and daughters of God. Jesus is the perfect representation of a Jewish person. The ideal, absolute, perfect Jew would look exactly like Jesus, because that's who he is. And so it makes sense that both Israel will be called his servant, and Jesus is called my servant. Are you tracking with me on that? That's going to be very important, because what we see again here in chapter 42 is two aspects of this my servant, of the servant of God. We see the faithful servant, who is Jesus, the person of Messiah, and that's going to be the first 7 to 13 verses. And then the fickle servant, Israel, the people, verses 14 through 25. Walk this through. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on Sunday on these first 7 verses, so I'm going to move quickly through those. But number one, we see here the faithful servant. Behold my servant whom I, I, am up, I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or raise His voice, nor make His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break. A dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. And He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands or the islands will wait expectantly for His law, or literally there, His instruction. This passage gives such a beautiful description of the graciousness of Jesus in His life and His ministry. He wasn't a bull-headed, loud-mouthed, Bible-banging, harsh-spirited, self-absorbed jerk. (laughs) He wasn't one of these guys, and you've seen him, you turn on the TV every now and then and you get one of these preachers and they're just going off and you're like, i just got to change the channel because he's just obnoxious. I hope you don't think that here, but... (laughs) Jesus just isn't that way. He's gentle. He's tender. People were drawn to Him, attracted to Him. He knew exactly when someone was at the breaking point and He didn't snap them in half. He knew when someone's light was barely flickering not to puff them out. But He also knew when someone was stiff-necked how to take care of them, how to deal with them, how to bring them to justice. Ironside tells of a time... When he was in London, he ran across an old book of the history of the world. And in this book, he he quotes from it. He said, in the section on the reign of Caesar Augustus, there was this sentence, quote, In his days, there was born in Bethlehem of Judea that goodly gentleman, Jesus Christ. That goodly gentleman. How true. That describes Jesus. A gentleman. Not a loud mouth. Not shouting in the streets. But a gentleman. Now you might ask, how can we know these verses refer to Jesus with reasonable certainty? Because again, the, the liberal scholars think that this servant is just idealized Israel. Or maybe someday the remnant, the faithful remnant, but it's not an individual. Well, let me give you some reason to believe this. And you guys are getting bonus to what we'll talk about on Sunday. Ancient rabbis. All taught and believed that these verses, these opening verses of chapter 42, talked about Messiah. Liberal Jewish scholars came along later, but the ancient rabbis, that's what they taught, that's what they believed. Well, how do you know that? You've heard of the Targum? The Targum are the Aramaic um, paraphrases of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Aramaic paraphrases were ultimately written down specifically. They were around the time of the Second Temple era, so four or five hundred years before Jesus. And there are two Targums, again Aramaic paraphrases, two Targums that are considered authoritative by by the rabbis. One of those two Targums is the Targum Jonathan. And it translates Isaiah 42 verse 1 this way. See my servant the Messiah whom I bring near." So the rabbis in that targum added in, again, it's a paraphrase, so they added to it, but they added in the Messiah. Why did they do that? Because they believe it's talking about a person, not the people. And so we have that very clear before us. And numerous other rabbinical resources accept that the Messiah, the, the person, the servant of Isaiah 42, is Messiah. Beyond that, the plain and simple context of each passage where God says, My servant makes it very clear if he's talking about a person or a people. And you can see it, obviously. There are five servant songs in Isaiah. And you might jot these down or just be aware of them. Five servant songs. And we're going to go over these across five different Sundays uh, coming up here. This next Sunday we'll begin with the first one. Isaiah 42, 1-7 is the first servant song. The second one is Isaiah 49. Verses 1-7. through The third one is Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. The fourth one begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and runs all the way through the end of Isaiah 53. And then finally, the fifth one we see in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, five what they call servant songs. And they're songs of the servant, Messiah, the servant Jesus Christ. Now, there are four more servant passages in Isaiah where God's talking about my servant, But these describe a people. And those are Isaiah 41 verses 8 through 16, the rest of this chapter. Uh, Or prior to that, we already saw that, sorry. Chapter 42 verses 18 through 21, this chapter. Chapter 43 verse 10. And then chapter 44 verses 1 through 5 and, and verse 21 at the end of that chapter. So just laying that out for you, these are all passages that talk about servants. Five that talk about the person. And four that talk about the people. And by the way, five, just for you biblical numerologists, is the number of grace in the Bible. So there are five servant songs all talking about Jesus. And it's that picture of grace in Scripture. So the biblical framework of these passages makes the distinction evident. But that's not where I get my certainty from. And I don't get my certainty that this is Jesus the Messiah from the old rabbis. Our certainty, gang comes from the Word of God itself that the Word reveals the Word. And the New Testament Scriptures gain consistently connects the five servant songs to Jesus. The apostles, the writers of the New Testament will quote from every one of those five servant songs and they will say, this is Jesus. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 12. You can turn there or just listen. Matthew chapter 12 beginning in verse 14 it says the pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him but jesus aware of this withdrew from there many followed him and he healed them all and he warned them not to tell who he was what's he doing he's not tooting his own horn he came very humbly now he also was not breaching the time you know the time wasn't right yet but he's telling them now let's just keep this down Matthew tells us this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And so Matthew quotes directly from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. By the way, side note, the reason why the translation is slightly different from Isaiah 42 to Matthew chapter 12 is Matthew is probably translating from the Septuagint. So we've gone from the Hebrew original to the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation from the Hebrew, to the English. And that's why it's slightly different, but it's the same. I mean, the meaning is exactly the same. But that's why if you read New Testament passages and you're comparing to Old Testament, you go, well, wait a minute, that's not exactly spot on word for word. It's because it's been translated from the Septuagint. Okay? The servant of the Lord, In Isaiah 42, 1-7 is Jesus. Okay, keep going. Verse 5, "...Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations." to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And this is Jesus' job description. Clearly, this is talking about Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. Matthew 5.17, he says, I didn't come to to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. And he does perfectly. He brings the covenant to bear. He's also the light of the world. A light to the nations, verse 6 says. John 8, 12. John 9, verse 5. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He gives sight to the blind. He sets captives free. He brings people out of prison. All of this describing Jesus. And we're going to come back and sit at the feet of this servant on Sunday. But let's continue on. I, the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Behold, before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Before they spring forth. Once again, God shuts the silent mouths of the false gods. You cannot do this. You cannot prophesy and it come true. Only I can. Well, Why, Lord? Because God's outside of time. Because God's outside of dimension. He's greater than all that. And so He can see it all happening at once. This is one of those really marvelous things about the character and nature of God. That at the same moment that Jesus was being crucified, he saw you believing in that death. That for God it happened at the same time. It wasn't two thousand years ago. When you when a person cries out faith in Jesus Christ and belief in the resurrection of Jesus, their belief is connected immediately to what already is. What's happening at the same time for God because He is the Great I Am, and that's how prophecy works. Is he sees it all at once. I've used the example before of, of, the, of the Goodyear blimp flying above the New Year's Day parade there in Pasadena. And you can sit on the curb and watch the parade go by. That's how we view history. We're sitting on the curb and history is slowly going by one float at a time. God sees the whole parade happening immediately, all at once. And that's how prophecy works. He's already seen it happen. He knows it's going to happen, so He says, hey, by the way, if this great float is coming it's about three floats back, and if you sit there long enough, you're gonna see it. It's beautiful. Watch for it. Here it comes, and we see it. Oh, how do he know? He was in the blimp. <laughs> he saw the whole thing. Now, I love this about God. He says he will not share his glory with another. And if that's the case, how can he share it with Jesus? Jesus has to be God. Because it's not that he's sharing it with another. He's sharing it with himself. As Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the Spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. And doesn't that just make you want to sing? It does Isaiah. Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Perhaps God is calling for singing to come out of Petra. That's the same, Selah and Petra, same place. Let them shout for joy from the tops Of the mountains, He says. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise to the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, He will raise a war cry and He will prevail against His enemies. The Lord Himself says, I will do it. I will come as a warrior. How is He going to do that? As Jesus, in the person of Jesus, at His second coming riding on that white horse. Revelation 19 describes it. Zechariah 14, verse 3, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That marvelous day. But wait, before that, watch this. The Lord declares a long silence. It's good timing. A long silence. Verse 14. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. When is this time of silence that's being talked about in verse 14? Between the Old Testament and the New Testament? That was my first thought. My first thought. Oh, it's it's the, the years of silence, the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, right? I don't think it is. I think... My opinion, obviously there may be some different ones, but my opinion, I think it's right now. I think it's from the moment Jesus ascended, the last 2,000 years, God has maintained silence. Now now understand what I mean by this. This has to be, and you'll see why in the context, it has to be a time yet future to Isaiah, but not the time between the Testaments. Why? because he speaks loud and clear now, he speaks loud and clear to people who believe, but he is silent to the world. The world does not hear God right now. You only hear God if you believe in Him. If you come to faith in Him and you learn to hear His voice. By the way, if you're sitting there going, well, I've never actually audibly heard His voice, it doesn't mean you don't believe in Him. Okay. He may or may not speak audibly to you. That that depends on how He wants to speak into your heart. He may just give you impression and He may just speak to you through His Word. Now I, I personally believe the more we know His Word, the more we're in His Word, the more used to His voice we become and we begin to be able to hear Him. But He only speaks to believers and He is silent to the world. And the Bible tells us so. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. Isaiah, I want you to write a book. Micah, I want you to bring this prophecy. Malachi, listen up. And He would speak and they heard the word and they wrote the word of God. But we're told in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things through whom He also made the world. But the reason I'm convinced that, this, that his, his current silence in the world, that, that, that this is talking about the last 2,000 years, is because of what immediately follows. Now watch this. I've kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. God gives two very interesting, and I will say this again, anthropomorphic examples of himself. Wait, I thought we weren't supposed to do that. Well, no, we're not, but He can. <laughs> we don't make anthrop- we don't compare God to human things because we don't humanize God. If we humanize God, we start to lessen our understanding or, or, or even who He is, but He can do it. And he does it for our understanding. And so he gives two anthropomorphic pictures. and the first one is a woman in labor. To so behold, I'm like a woman in labor. When? After this long period of silence. I, I'm, I'm like a woman in labor. And the ultimate example game here is Jesus. Jesus is the woman in labor. What do you mean? Where would you get that? Matthew 24, verse 7. Nation will rise against nation, Jesus says. And kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Guess what? The birth pangs are not just a world groaning. The birth pangs, gang, are felt by Christ. He says, Now like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I am ready to bring to bear, Jesus is saying, the Spirit of Christ through Isaiah the prophet. I'm the one... Who's groaning? Paul says in Romans chapter eight, we all groan. We're groaning in our bodies right now. We're groaning for our glorified selves. The earth is groaning to be freed at the revelation of the of the sons of God. But here in Isaiah we get this amazing thing. Jesus says, I'm groaning. I am aching. I am feeling the birth pangs. And I am ready to bring my kingdom to bear. The second example he gives is of a mighty warrior. He's already given it back in verse 13. But now again in verse 15 he says, I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands, dry up the ponds. I'll lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust and idols, and who say to molten images, you are our gods. And this is Jesus come on the white horse. The Revelation 19 return of the king, breaking out, rescuing Israel, judging the idolatrous nations of the world. He comes riding in on that white horse, a mighty warrior. Time of silence, birth pains, return of the king. And this is what we see described here. And by the way, did you catch the commitment of the Lord in all of this? Verse 16, he says at the end of the verse, These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. So you can bank on it. This is the faithful servant. Well, we end the chapter with the fickle servant. And this cannot describe Jesus. Verse 18, Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Wait a minute, Jesus deaf? Jesus blind? It's not Jesus. This now is the servant Israel. Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord? Gang, this is the people of Israel, this is the fickle servant. And here's the reason for all their deafness and blindness. Verse 20, You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. In other words, no reason. You're not reasoning through what you've seen. You are not reasoning through what you've heard. You're not applying these things. Why don't people in the camp of replacement theology ever replace Israel with themselves in passages like these? You blind and deaf people. Oh, that's not Israel, that's the church. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps we should sometimes. Perhaps some of the curses laid out on Israel or some of the negative statements laid on Israel, maybe we should take those on ourselves and ask the question, have I ever been deaf to the message God is asking me to speak? Has God ever told me, Rick, I want you to say something to someone. I need you to bring this to a person, but I didn't really want to. So I'm not listening. I'm the messenger who's gone deaf. Have you ever been blinded by your own supposed peace with the Lord? Now that's a scary one. the thought that there are people sitting in churches across America every Sunday morning who think they're at peace with the Lord. But they have no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. But they think because I show up at God's house and meet Him there that, you know, it's all good. It's all good, right, Jesus? Do we ever feel so at ease in our Christianity that we just take God for granted and we make assumptions about life and what's coming? Spiritual blindness. Listen to this. This is, this is big. Spiritual blindness and deafness and muteness set in for this reason, and the Lord just explained this. These things set in when we start assuming and we stop observing what the Lord is doing. When we make assumptions on God's will and God's plan and God's motivations, instead of observing what His will is, instead of looking at what God is doing, we just assume. God's cool with gay marriage. I'm sure He's fine with it. I mean, Rick, you told us to err on the side of grace, so let's do that. I'm sure He's fine with it. How do you know? Well, I assume he is. Have you observed it? Have you taken time to go to the place of observation? The word observe in the Hebrew there is shamar. It means to guard, to keep watch, and to be alert. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, Be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. And you might say, and I have asked the question, okay, how do I do that? How do I keep watch? I like the sound of it, but how do I stay alert? How do I be on my guard? Well, listen, how did Jesus tell us to make disciples? He said in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How do I keep watch? By observing all that He has commanded me. By keeping my eyes fixed with observation and reason and understanding on His commands on his word on what he has told us so paul said in 1st timothy 6:20 oh timothy guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge observe guard shamar to guard to keep watch guard the trust observe the whole word of god keep watch and again, we're talking about vigilant observation of both god's work and or God's word and God's work until he comes. That's how you keep watch. You keep observing what he's doing, what he's about. Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. The commands of God are a good thing. They point toward righteous. Literally they point toward Jesus. For the law is the tutor to point us to lead us to Christ, right? The law is a glorious thing. Jesus said in Matthew five eighteen, "Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Keep the word. Teach the word." And I love what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 5. We already read the verse. By now you should all be teachers. Guess what, brothers and sisters? There are those who have the gift of teaching. But every single believer in Jesus Christ has the call of teaching. We are all called to be teachers. You're going to ask me to sit up there and teach on a Wednesday? No. I'm telling you, we are all called to teach the Word, but we can't teach what we don't know. So once again, we've got to be observing the word consistently, constantly, because without it, our message is toothless. And our word has no bite if we don't observe his glorious word. And by the way, our witness is benign when we are not observing his wonderful work. Observation. What's God up to? How can I most quickly align to that? Look at what God's doing. Join Him in what He's doing. Be involved in the work of the Lord. Israel Gang is a prime example of what happens to a people who are called by God, but they fail to faithfully observe both His Word and His work. They got busy in life. And they left the observation. For a while, they left it to their leaders. And then their leaders left it to the priests. And then the priests left it. And that's the danger that we as human beings face, just like Israel. Verse 22 But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver and a spoil with none to say, Give back. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave up Jacob for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? Now Isaiah is giving his two cents worth, and in whose ways they were not willing to walk, and whose law they did not obey. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger. And the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around, yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. And here, still in the court of reason, God declares the reason Israel has been plundered, despoiled, dispersed, and burned, even to the point graphically in the Holocaust. It burned him, and he paid no attention. Burned in the Holocaust. Holocaust survivors pouring into the state of Israel. Rebuilding the nation of Israel. And yet still not coming to faith in Jesus. Although many are beginning to. Gang, the fickle servant. In their fickleness they became deaf to the message. They became blind to the wonders of God. And this is serious business because God judges fickleness as sin. I almost didn't use the word fickle because it sounds so, that's not a big deal. So you're a little fickle in your faith. No big deal. We're all kind of fickle, right? Fickleness is sin. And Numbers 32.23 tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. Israel is proof of that. And there's only one release from the indictment of the fickleness of the servant of God, Israel, and that is the faithfulness of the servant of God, Jesus Christ. He can bring release and he's our release as well, which is why chapter forty three begins, just one verse. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, you are mine. How did God call Israel by his name? Yisrael. Prince of God. God put his own name into the name of of His people, Israel. Lord, may we be a people who are observant of Your work and Your Word. Not denying either one, Father. May we be a people who have our eyes fixed on Jesus such that Jesus, when Your Spirit is moving in this world, when You are doing something, when You are actively engaged in something, we're there with You. We're engaged because we see You at work. And may we see Your work in our lives so that we have a testimony that is true and personal and real that we can share with people. May we, Father, be so grounded in Your Word that even as we share the testimony of personal experience, we can back it up with biblical truth. The truth, Lord, that we we know will feed and strengthen. That we know it grows belief in non-believers and it strengthens belief in believers. Father, make us people of your truth. And help us to stand in a shaky world, Jesus, until you come. And we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.